Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present. Brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, www.ihconvention.com. The sermon you're about to hear on today's podcast is by Noel Scott. Preached in the year 2000 at Dayton Inner Church Holiness Convention, and he titles it Christ Likeness. Thank you, Brother Sankey. We too are thankful for the privilege to be here. Just a few days ago, we thought we just couldn't come. We felt like we needed to go and be with our daughter and her husband in the loss of their little four-year-old child. Medical mistake, wrong dose of medicine. He was unconscious within an hour and never regained consciousness. But Sister Scott and I, and in behalf of our daughter and son-in-law, want to express heartfelt, deep appreciation for your prayers. We have felt the lift, the lift that comes when people remember you in prayer. Our daughter, who isn't really where we'd like to see her spiritually, she told her mother, when it's the darkest, it seems like I feel someone is carrying me along. And her mother said, you know what that is, don't you, that's carrying you? She said, yes, I do. It's the prayers of God's people. And we want to express our deep appreciation. We don't feel like she's out of the woods yet. Sometimes when the numbness and the shock begins to wear off, and reality sets in, the old enemy can come in like a flood, try to bring bitterness or unforgiveness, but we're contending for God's grace to continue to minister, and if you could continue to leave her on your prayer list, her name is Glenna, Glendora is actually her name. She goes by Glenda now, Glenda and Mitch. If you could keep praying with us for another 30 days or longer as the Lord puts it on your heart, it would be so very much appreciated. And I guess I would have to say that I feel a little bit carried along for this service tonight. As I mentioned to you a while ago, I felt could not come. I called Brother Sankey to ask if it would be too much trouble to get someone else to take the service this evening. And he graciously, though reluctantly, consented. And for two days we left it that way that I would not be coming. But I could find no rest in my spirit. And I felt like I should call him again. And you would think by then he would have gotten someone else to take the service. But the Lord told me Sunday morning, I felt it was the Lord. And I felt like the Lord told me, no, Brother Sankey hasn't gotten anyone. He's just going to fill in himself. So I called him and sure enough, that was the case. And beyond that, there had been a death in his church which was going to keep him away from the convention today till evening. So I just became convinced that for some reason God wanted this message preached tonight. And I would like you to continue to pray for us through the course of the service tonight. Before I turn to the word, I would like to mention just one thing. I just learned today that there's been a reprinting of a wonderful missionary biography 
on Charles E. Kalman, warrior, missionary, warrior. I consider this one of the greatest missionary biographies I have ever read. A lot of you have read the devotionals written by Mrs. Charles Kalman. She writes the biography about her husband. The Moore family has reprinted this book. They have a, they have a station back there down the first aisle. I would like I wish every church would have it. I wish every family that has missionary candidates in your family. This is a book that will challenge you and challenge young people to give everything to God in missionary service. And I'm so glad. I believe they've done the church a wonderful service in reprinting this book. It's the more books booth somewhere back there among the stuff. I just felt like I should mention it. They didn't know I was going to. I didn't even ask permission to. Sometimes it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to get permission. So I just went ahead and <laughs> decided to risk it tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I would like to begin the reading at verse 17. The subject tonight is a subject I am not worthy to speak on, but the moment that I received the letter from Brother Sankey asking me to speak, I felt like the Lord at that moment laid this line of truth on my heart. The subject is Christ-likeness. Beginning the reading at verse 17, where Peter is writing, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience sake toward God endure grief, note these words, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? Maybe I could pause here to ask, do all of you enjoy being buffeted for your faults? <laughs> I've never even got that far in grace where I really enjoy being buffeted for my faults. But he said, what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? What he's saying is any of us ought to be able to do that. Any of us ought to have that much grace. That's really not anything to write home about if you be buffeted for your faults and take it patiently. Maybe some of us can say amen or oh me, whichever would be appropriate. But he said, if when ye do well, would you allow me to paraphrase here just a little? If when you're doing exactly what you ought to be doing, if when you're in the very center of the will of God and doing his will with all of your heart, if when you do that and you suffer for that, this gets God's attention. He said, this is acceptable with God. God notes that in his diary about you. Why? Why is that true, Peter? For even here unto were ye called. Lord, called to suffer? I thought it was to be fun and games and hallelujahs and hurrahs all the way in. But that's not what the word says. Even here unto were you called, that is to suffer. Friend, it's not what we are when everything's going well and people are bragging on us and lauding our name to the sky and saying what wonderful people we are. That's not what tells the story. But it's what we are when the pressure's on. When misunderstanding is abroad, false accusations are being spread, and I might add, being believed. 
Friend, it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. Bless his, I'm about to feel religious about this already tonight. For even hereunto were you called, listen to it, because Christ also suffered for us. And this will be the text, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. And in the original, it's in his tracks or in his footprints that ye should follow in his steps who did no sin. And it gets better. Neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled reviled not again. When he suffered he threatened not but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. I want to speak tonight, the Lord being my helper, on Christ, my example. And I know that this could be the theme of literally scores of messages and sermons. But I want to limit myself to three ways in which Jesus, or three areas in which Jesus is the one I'm to follow. He's the steps. His are the steps. I'm to put my feet down where he put his. I should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. I want to look at those three, but first I want to mention a certain word here. The word example. He hath given us an example that we should follow in his steps. The word used for example here, and there's more than one in the New Testament, but the word used for example here is the model of handwriting to be copied by a schoolboy. Let me take you to the classroom just a moment. When you went to grade school, you, elementary school, first grade, second grade, did they have those little placards across the chalkboard, maybe above the chalkboard, clear across the room maybe, that had those perfectly formed cursive letters? The capital A, I can see. How many had them in your schoolroom? Could I see your hands? Most of us did. Maybe they do it different now. But I can see those in my mind's eye, that perfectly formed capital A. And then the little A. And then I remember the tail on the B as it started, and the double loop, and then the little B. You know what that was? It was the model of handwriting to be copied by a schoolboy. May I ask you, does your handwriting perfectly emulate those beautifully formed letters across the chalkboard? Anybody that knows Noel Scott's handwriting knows that he's fallen a long way short of that perfect example. And Brother Sankey, I have to confess in life's journey, there's been times that I've fallen a long way short of my perfect example, Jesus Christ. I want to be like him. I pray to be like him. I seek to be like him. But I doubt that any of us would want to stand right now and profess I'm exactly like Jesus right now. But most of us would have to say, he's still working on me. There's some areas that still need attention and he's still dealing with me. And I hope he's still dealing with every one of us. There'll come a day when we'll be perfectly like him, for we shall see him as he is. But while we're in this life, I still need to look at my perfect example and bring myself as perfectly into alignment as I can with that model to be copied by a schoolboy. First of all, tonight, I want to note that Jesus 
is my example when I face opposition and adversity. I wish I could tell every young preacher and maybe, maybe every other preacher as well, you don't need to expect to be in Christian service without expecting to fight some battles and facing some opposition and some adversity. It seems to go, it just seems to go with it. And would you hear me tonight? One of the surprising things is where your opposition comes from. I mean, my opposition has never been from drunkards or harlots or unclean persons. And did you know Jesus' opposition wasn't either? It was from the religious people of his day that caused him to be crucified. And we still have people that have that kind of rancor in their heart that about all they can do is find fault. They never boost. They never help. They never lift the load. I'm still in a good humor. I want you to know that. But I'm trying to preach the truth. Not everybody said amen, but that was good preaching, Brother Scott. Just stay right. It's surprising where your opposition will come from. For so often it comes from people you thought would be behind you the most, would stand by you the surest, and you felt like you could count on them if you could count on anybody. But there's betrayal that takes place. I expect I'm preaching to some pastors here tonight that know a little bit about opposition. I expect I could talk to some Bible school administrators that know something about what it is when that opposition begins to roll in. But you know what, who my example is? How am I to react when that comes? I'm to look at my perfect model and see how he reacted. I ask you a question tonight. Did Jesus know who would betray him? Do you think he did? Oh, yes, the Bible very clearly says, and Jesus, knowing who would betray him. But I ask a second question. <laughs> did Jesus treat Judas any differently than he treated the other disciples? No, sir, he didn't. How do you know that, Brother Scott? Because when finally Jesus made the announcement, one of you shall betray me, nobody had any idea who it was. Now, Brother Sankey, that would have been hard on me. I, I, I'd have had to have at least told Peter, James, and John, you know, the inner circle. Wouldn't you have probably? Keep your eye on old Judas. But Jesus didn't tell anyone. And beloved, I think there's a truth there that the holiness movement needs. There's some things that ought not to be told even if it's the truth. It ought not to be told. But someone says, well, bless God, it's the truth. I'm going to tell it. Well, wait, wait, wait just a minute before you do. The Bible does say whatsoever things are true. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, whatsoever things are lovely. Whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, tell all of that you want to. But make sure it meets all the criteria, not just, is it true? There's a passage over there in, in my favorite chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. It's verse 7. There's a quartet of divine graces. You remember that? Love believeth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. I just want to look at the first one. Believe or beareth all things. What does that mean, beareth all things? Does it mean endure? It doesn't really mean that. Because it uses the word endure later in the same verse. But the word translated beareth there, it literally means to put a roof over. It means to hide from the light of the sun. Or to put it in our vernacular, it means to keep confidential. There's some things you don't talk about. Now, I have four brothers in the flesh. 
Two are older than I. Two are younger. And some of those brothers of mine have some faults. Fortunately, I escaped without any, Brother Collinsworth, but, you know, some of those brothers of mine have some faults. But you know what? I'm not going to be talking about the faults of my brothers while I'm here. Why not, Brother Scott? They're my brother. And you know, I think that's exactly the way it ought to work in the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, our brothers and sisters will have some faults, but we're not going to talk about them. We're just going to put a roof over them. We're just going to hide them from the light of the sun. We're just going to keep them confidential. Why? That's the way the master did. That's the way Jesus did. He's my model. I'm to follow him. I'm to behave like him when I face adversity and opposition I love that little account from the life of David Brainerd David you remember gave up so much to answer God's call at least in my estimation he did David was in love with the daughter of Jonathan Edwards they wanted to marry and hoped to marry But David Brainerd knew he couldn't take a bride into the wilds of the American frontier. And he gave up the privilege of love and home and marriage to answer God's call. And you that have read his biographies know that his life was burned out by the age of 29. During the last months of his life, the, the woman he had hoped to marry ministered to him as his nurse in his dying months. But here's what I wanted to get to. In spite of David's zeal and how he had burned out his life in such a short time, in spite of David's zealousness, he had those that opposed him and tried to undermine his influence. Isn't that almost unthinkable? It would be, except that it happens today. But here's what I wanted to get to. Did you read what David wrote in his diary about those that were working against him? I think I can quote him verbatim. He wrote in his diary, and David always kept a daily diary of his prayer life and things that happened, etc. He said in his diary, I longed that those whom I had reason to believe bore me ill will. Isn't that a kind way of saying it? Those whom I had reason to believe bore me ill will. He said, I long that they might be eternally happy. You say, Brother Scott, that's not natural. No, it isn't natural. It's Christ-like. And David wrote on to say, it seems refreshing to me to think I might meet them in heaven. Say, I can believe in people that have a spirit like that right in the midst of the furnace, right in the midst of the fire, right in the midst of the opposition, right in the midst of opposition. Jesus is my example in times of opposition and adversity. Secondly, tonight, and maybe more importantly, I'm not sure, Jesus is not only my example in adversity and opposition but Jesus is also my example in forgiveness in forgiveness brother Sankey I'm not sure that there's any more greatly needed message in the holiness movement than a message on forgiveness I am absolutely astounded as I travel across the country how often when you get really close to people you touch a stream of unforgiveness if not bitterness in their spirit. And dear hearts, if there's any sin I'm scared of tonight I'm scared of bitterness bitterness unforgiveness normally 
culminates in bitterness. And if some sins have slain their thousands, I'm afraid bitterness has slain its tens of thousands. Oh, this part of the message weighs heavily on my heart tonight. For I know a person that has bitterness in their spirit will not make it in to the city of God. It's going to keep as many people out of heaven as any one thing I know. But friend, I don't care how well sanctified you are. There's going to be occasions that come about where you'll be tempted to have an unforgiving spirit. Because the old devil is in the business of trying to destroy souls just that way. We're living in a day when so many unthinkable things happen. Happen in homes. Things that I didn't even know existed when I grew up in a holiness home. Things that happen in churches. I hear things about churches, Brother Sankey, that break my heart. Even sane, worldly people wouldn't treat one another like I've heard takes place in churches. The Bible talks about the gall of bitterness. The only antidote I need know of for bitterness is a fully sanctified spirit indwelling heart that can overcome any of the accusations of Satan. Friend, there will be occasions when you'll be tempted to have an unforgiving spirit. But Jesus, well, let me say it this way. I don't believe there's any more basic truth to preach tonight than the absolute necessity of maintaining a forgiving spirit. Jesus said we, he taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. How? As we forgive our debtors. But what if I don't forgive my debtor? Then there's no forgiveness for me. You know why I know how I know some people aren't right with God? They've got an unforgiving spirit. So I know they're not forgiven because they're not forgiving. Jesus said, if we forgive not men their trespasses, neither will our heavenly Father forgive us our trespasses. And again, Jesus taught us, as you stand praying, what's the next word? Forgive. I don't know what that says to you, but it says to me, all along life's pathway, there's going to be things happen to you that if you want to, you can let that unforgiving spirit come in. Every time you go to prayer, make sure you've got everything forgiven because it will block our prayers in its tracks. Brother Sankey, I don't, ever, I don't think I'll ever forget a story that was told from this platform five years ago tonight. And before I give the story, I feel like saying this. I'm not suggesting that it's always easy to forgive. Maybe you've always found it easy to forgive. I'll have to say personally, there's been some things that have been hard to forgive. And I'm just going to be open and confess here tonight. I would pray about this issue, whatever it was, and I have something very clearly in mind. And I would pray and I'd pray till I believed I was clear over the top of it and I believed I really forgave from my heart. But it wouldn't be 30 minutes till the old devil would start a record playing in my mind. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. It wasn't fair. And it probably wasn't fair. But it wasn't fair what they did to Jesus either. But he could say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
And I remember Attorney Gibbs giving an account from this platform, I believe it was five years ago tonight. He told about being at a Christian commencement, Christian school, over 1,500 people there. And the graduates had already marched in and he was seated on the platform with the pastor and superintendent. And the ceremony was just about to begin when suddenly he realized a man had come in. A man that had just gotten out of the penitentiary that, day, that week, just a few days before. And the superintendent turned to Attorney Gibbs there on the platform and, and said to him, Man, pray. If you've ever prayed, pray now. And the uh, attorney asked him, Well, what am I to pray about? And he said, I can't explain now, but pray. And Attorney Gibbs said, I didn't know what I was praying about, but I said, Lord, I'm praying for whatever that superintendent is concerned about. And here's what was happening. In that grade, in that graduating class was a young lady that had marched in with her class. The girls had come first and then the men. A girl that had caught Attorney Gibbs' attention as she came up the aisle in the processional. A girl that had beautiful blonde hair features that were lovely but there was something about her face that was disfigured it actually looked like her face had been struck a crushing blow that had broken the bones on the face of one side till her eyes seemed to set to the side rather than front and center and the superintendent left the platform and went over and spoke to that same young lady in the class. The reason he had to speak to her was this. It was the custom at that school as the graduates came across the platform to receive their diplomas, turn their tassel, then they would step off and they would pick up a rose or roses, as the case may be, to give to their mother or their mother and father. The man that had just come in was the man that had caused that terrible disfigurement to that young lady's face. It was her own father. And the question he had to ask the young lady was, do you want one rose? They hadn't expected the father to be there, just got out of the penitent, or do you want two? superintendent came back to the platform and the ceremony proceeded. Attorney Gibbs gave his address. Then it came time for the graduates to come across one by one till finally the time for this disfigured. You know, maybe I'm wrong on this, but it seems like it would be worse for a young lady, even than a young man, to suffer that disfigurement. But she came across she received her diploma. She turned her tassel. And she stepped down to the front seat and picked up two, two roses. Her mother was seated over against the side aisle a few, a few rows back. She went down that side aisle and came to her mother and handed her the rose and bent over and kissed her and said, Mother, I love you. And then she came back across that large auditorium and walked the long aisle back to where that beast of a man sat that had caused that terrible disfigurement. And she went back and handed her daddy a rose and you could hear her say, Daddy, I love you, and I forgive you. I say again, it seems to me some things would be harder to forgive than others. I was preaching in a camp meeting in southern Texas. Pat McCourtney is here somewhere in this service it was his camp meeting, and I was making the statement, 
We have to have a forgiving spirit no matter what happens to us. And I still believe that. I still preach that. But you never know who you're talking to. And you never know what people have been through. Seated in that camp meeting tabernacle was a young Spanish mother. Had three if not four children who had been beaten. I mean physically beaten by an ungodly hulk of a husband. And I don't mean once or twice. I mean over and over and over. But here I was saying, you've got to have a forgiving spirit. And we don't know what people have been through. It was just four weeks ago, I guess four weeks ago, today, yesterday, Tuesday. This is Tuesday, isn't it? Four weeks ago, Tuesday, we went to our little grandson's funeral. But at the visitation the night before, I mentioned to you it was a medical mistake. It took place in a doctor's office, not a hospital. But the doctor and his wife, someone brought me word, the doctor and his wife are coming through the line. And the nurse that had actually given the medication was following them. The pastor told me that he's coming up the aisle and I didn't know if my daughter would be ready to see them. Can you understand what I'm saying? Because there was the cause, the cause of their great loss. And the doctor and his wife walked directly to the casket they didn't stop to greet my daughter and her husband but the nurse stopped to greet her and I've never heard a more awful wail from any broken hearted person as my daughter turned and almost fainted as she went down in her chair she just felt like she couldn't face the people that caused her pain, that took the most precious thing from her. We're not suggesting intentionally. Please understand that. And my daughter slumped to a chair, and my brother remarked to me, I've never heard anyone wail like that. But God some way helped us through the evening. <clears throat> the next day, the funeral, and then back to the church after the funeral for a meal and to divide the flowers. There were some flowers Glenda wanted to take home. Others some of the family wanted and they were passing them out. But the doctor had sent a flower. At first, Glenda didn't even want to see it because it was such a reminder of the pain. But I heard her tell the pastor as they were dividing the flowers. She said, leave this flower from the doctor here at the church as a token of forgiveness. Friend, we have to forgive no matter what happens. But you say, Brother Scott, you don't know what I've been through. No, I don't. You don't know how I've been hurt. No, I don't. You don't know how I've been treated. I don't know. I don't know what you've had to go through. And you may not know anybody that's had to go through what you've had to go through. But I want to tell you, I can point you to one that has gone through more. And that's Jesus you see, I've never been forsaken by my own, but Jesus was. I've never been called Beelzebub, at least not to my face, but Jesus was. I've never been beaten with many stripes, but 
Jesus was. And I've never had a crown of thorns crushed down over my head. But Jesus did. And I've certainly never had nails through my hands or my feet. But Jesus did. And he could say, Father, 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 forgive them. They know not what they do. And most people that hurt me and hurt you don't know what they do either. And I don't know how to tie this together the way it ought to be. But I believe when Jesus spoke those immortal words, Father, forgive them, I think a miracle happened. For you remember on either side of him were two others, malefactors, crucified with him. And the Bible says at first both of those malefactors railed on Jesus saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But there came a change in one of them. You remember that? And I think I know when that change happened. I think I know why it happened. I believe it was when Jesus spoke those words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And I believe when Jesus spoke those words, a head turned on this malefactor over here. And a frown furred his brow. Forgive them. Forgive the people that are driving nails in your hands. Impossible. Unbelievable. Incredible. Can't be. But that's what he said. And then I think a light came on in this malefactor's mind. As he repeated the word again. Forgive them. Forgive them. Then I think an idea was born. If Jesus would forgive the people that are driving nails in his hands, maybe, just maybe, it's not too late for me. Maybe I could be forgiven. Oh, that, that was born in his mind. And now he begins to rebuke the other malefactor, saying, aren't you afraid to talk like you're talking? See, we're in the same condemnation. We indeed justly, we're getting exactly what we deserve. That sounds like a repentant spirit to me. This man over here, meanwhile, was still railing on Jesus. There were three things wrong with him in addition to his life of crime. One, he had a rotten, stinking, angry attitude, angry with everybody. Friend, there's not many things about us that's more important than keeping a right attitude. And then secondly, there was an if in what he said. If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Nobody gets anything from God when there's an if there. Finally, third thing wrong, he was giving Jesus orders instead of asking what he should do. But this man rebukes him and said, aren't you afraid to say what you're saying? Talk like you're talking. We're going to die too. We indeed justly. But he said, this man, meaning Jesus, this man has done nothing Amiss. What do you suppose convinced that old malefactor that Jesus was genuine? I believe it was the perfect spirit, forgiving spirit that he saw in the direst hour of agony. And then he begins to address Jesus. And there's no if in what he said. But he says, Lord, Lord, he said, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And now Jesus turns to him as best a crucified person can turn. And he said, I'm taking you home with me today. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Oh, I expect to meet that man one of these days. He had, didn't have time to join the church. Didn't have time to get baptized. Didn't have time to do one good work. But I expect to meet him because he met the master. You know, I had never known till very recently 
how far apart the crosses were on Calvary. But archaeologists have now found the sockets where the crosses dropped in. They were 13 feet apart. Can you think of this other man over here on the other cross within 13 feet of the Savior of the world just moments before he died, but he died lost. But this man was saved because he met the Master. Well, obviously I don't have time to finish the message. You haven't listened fast enough. I'm sure it's your fault. <laughs> don't you? Aren't you sure? Let me just give you what the last point is. Not only is Jesus my example in adversity and opposition and my example in forgiveness, and I want to testify tonight, I can't think of anybody, Brother Sankey, that I've got anything against. My soul is free. There's no rancor. I'm glad God can drain the poisons of unforgiveness and bitterness out of our spiritual bloodstream and pour in the nectars of his love and grace and give us a new heart and a new life and a new deliverance. We can be more than conquer through him that loves us tonight because he's my example. I want to follow that perfect model to be copied by a schoolboy. But finally, Jesus is my example in suffering. Just four things, and I'm just going to list them. I'm not going to comment. Peter gives us four characteristics as to how Jesus suffered or about his suffering, perhaps I should say it that way. First of all, Jesus' suffering was undeserved suffering. For the Bible says he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Friend, I have to acknowledge I deserve some of the things I've suffered. When I haven't communicated as I should have, I hadn't been as careful that people understood as well as I could have. I deserve some of the things I've suffered. But friend, that can never be said about Jesus. No one was ever more wrongly treated than he, but he kept that forgiving spirit. No sin and no guile. It was undeserved suffering. Secondly, it was unembittered suffering. For it says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Say, I'm glad God can sanctify us so good that he can take that old kickback spirit out and give us a heart that's like Jesus and to love like Jesus. Bless his name. Suffering can make you better or it can make you bitter. But could you underline this next statement if you forget everything else? Bitterness is a choice. It's a choice. You have to decide, I'm going to let myself, but it's a tragic choice if anyone lets it happen. But Jesus was unembittered. Oh, aren't you glad we've got a perfect example? I remember one time in a university classroom a lot of years ago, our discussion was on personality development and how we ought to live. Can you imagine that in a university classroom? And someone came up with a comment, what we really need is someone to come and live a perfect life before us to show us how to live. Hmm. Someone else spoke up and said we had one like that and we crucified him. But that's still what we need. That one, that example, that model to be followed. They were first called Christians at Antioch. You know why? They saw the spirit of Jesus. I wonder if we'd get the nickname these days. I hope people are seeing enough. I said I wasn't going to comment. Forgive me for that misstatement. Thirdly, about Jesus' suffering, it was not only undeserved and unembittered, it was unretaliating. Have you ever been tempted to retaliate? I have. Are you too holy that you've never been tempted? But Jesus, 
it says, when he suffered, he threatened not. Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee. Just like my handwriting doesn't perfectly emulate those perfectly formed letters. I haven't always come up to the standard of the Collingsworth, but I long to be. And I'm going to ask the musicians to come because we're going to sing a verse of Oh, to be like thee in just a moment. Let me give you the fourth point. Not only undeserved suffering and unembittered and unretaliating, but it was unfrustrated suffering, for it says he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Friend, God hasn't promised me a fair deal in this world, and he hasn't promised you. Who are we to think everything should go our way? Oh, friend, let's look to Jesus, and let's ask him to give us a spirit like his. While the musician is starting to play, I want us to stand together and there's one final thing that I feel like I must say in conclusion. I do not know whom I am preaching to tonight. I would have no way of knowing what anyone has suffered. I know there's suffering in Bible schools, there's suffering in churches, there's suffering in relationships between boards and pastors and boards and school administrators. There's problems within families and within churches. And the old devil will come along with his suggestion. It isn't fair. It isn't fair. But I'll tell you what helps me if I ever feel like I was wrongly treated is to look to Jesus and remember how he suffered, how he was treated, and he could say, Father, forgive them. And when I think of how much he suffered, I'm ashamed that I was ever tempted to have a pity party. And I know you've never been tempted along that line. I can just tell by looking at you, you never have. But I have sometimes. But when I look away to Jesus, remember how forgiving he was to me and to all others. I'm ashamed that I ever felt sorry for myself. But I feel like I must ask before we go, am I speaking to someone that you're battling unforgiveness? The old devil is tempting you along that line and you need special grace and special help from the Lord. I want to bear you good news and tell you there's one in heaven is touched with the feeling of our infirmity and he's able to give us overcoming grace. I want us to turn to that number. Our brother will give us what number it is and we'll sing a verse or two tonight. If there's anyone that feels like you need to pray, would you come and bring your need to the Lord while we pray? Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. Keep passing it on.